0: Welcome back to the Tapes Archive podcast, where we release interviews that have never been heard before. In this episode, we have Boston's original frontman, Brad Delp. At the time of this interview in 1978, Delp was 27 years old and was in the midst of recording Boston's second record. Two years earlier, Boston released what would become the best-selling debut album of all time until Guns N' Roses' first album, Appetite for Destruction. In the interview, Delp talks about how the second album is coming along, if the band Boston is a democracy, his feelings on a recent insult from Elvis Costello and his self-doubt. This week's interview is hosted by Mark Allen. One last thing before we get to the interview, the Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in, and now it's time to open the vault. I
1: guess the first question, and the most obvious one is, where is the new album? I don't know. <laughs> where is the new album? It's in, uh, it's in Tom's basement right now, and uh, outside. There haven't been too many delays outside of, you might have heard about the flooding that, that uh, occurred over the winter. We're doing the whole album in Tom's basement. As was the first album. Totally yeah, right. actually about probably about 75-80% of the first one was done there. And the only reason we finished it out in L.A. was to keep the record company happy. So this one, uh, they're happy from the last album, so we can do, they let us do the whole thing here. The only problem we had during the winter was when the snow melted, Tom's basement flooded, and that happened more than once. So just as we would kind of get rolling, we'd have to yank everything on and wait. So so that caused maybe uh, two or three weeks delay anyway. Then we had uh, a couple of incidents with bad tape. He ordered like a, a gross of tape and uh, something happened when he got it. It wasn't right, he had to send it back. So we've had a few delays along that line. And outside of that, we've just been kind of taking our time making the record. We knew it, it wasn't going to be real fast when we finished the first one. Because the first album really, if you count all the time we spent putting demo tapes together, some of the songs on the first album were recorded once, you know, a long time ago and re-recorded again. When it came down to making the album, we were quite familiar with the songs. So it was quite a long process putting that one together, and we knew it was going to be quite a long time. So it was due to be released a month and a half ago. We had hoped that it well. We hoped that it would be out right around now, or maybe a couple of weeks earlier. And um, now it doesn't look like it's going to be out for about another three to four weeks. We haven't put the vocals on yet. Everything else is about finished. The last thing I read about it in Rolling Stone is Tom Scholz said he hadn't done anything as far as the album. Well, he hadn't written any songs. He hadn't oh, well, we've got more. Yeah, we, I forget when that article was, but we've got more than enough material, and we've been working up material. Well, we had two or three songs before we even got off the road that we did in the live set that hadn't been recorded. Uh, one of them is Man Will Never Be. It's kind of a ballad type thing. And we knew we were going to use that. And There's another song that we used to play called uh, Don't Be a Afraid, and that's going to be on there. And uh, we had to work out most of the other tunes. As it stands now, I think there's going to be between seven and eight songs on the next album. And we must have about, I think there's nine or ten that are viable songs. So we're going to have a few extra to fall back on. And most of those have been weeded out now, so actually Tom is just wrapping up the lead parts. What happened was we recorded, say, these nine or ten songs all the way through with singing. Maybe we do like one verse just to get how the thing was going to go. And then we'd listen to that, and then we went back and re-recorded the whole thing. So I think when Tom said he hadn't started on it, the fact of the matter was we probably had a copy all made, but it wasn't the wasn't the keep tracks. Right. So now we go back and, uh, and do it again. And that's, we're kind of in phase two right now. That's a lot different frame of reference to the way he thought of yeah. not, not starting Well, technically we hadn't started the record, but once you put it down once, then it's just a matter of going through it again and getting it, you know, we, we kind of re- I guess we do things maybe a little differently than a lot of bands do. Uh, when Tom gets an idea, it usually goes down on tape first, and then we hear it on tape, the way he has it, and then we go and rehearse it. We rehearse in Cambridge at the music complex, Cambridge Music Complex, and then after we rehearse it, we go back and try some other things on tape. And then when we're happy with that, we, we do the record, so it's a, it's a long process, but it's the way Tom likes to work. He's very... You know, in particular about what what goes down on the record and wants to make sure that everything is just right. And it gives us an opportunity to become more familiar with the material rather than just kinda putting it down. What does the record company have to say about when the first album came out I think August seventy six? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that I guess it was. So what does the record time. company have to say about the fact that it's been almost two years since yeah. the last album? Well, had the first album not done as well as it did, I'm sure we'd either be fired or we'd have three albums out by now, because yeah, they would have been very concerned. As it is, having done so well, which kind of surprised everybody, including us, that it, that it did that one, they're just more or less letting us do it in hopes that the next one will be equally successful if it is, and then they don't have any problems. Uh, they've been they've been very good about it overall. I personally, because when Tom is working, that doesn't leave me with that much to do. So I've had a lot of spare time and I've been working on some things of my own. But uh, I kind of like to be out on the road right now myself. You know, I kind of wish the album was out, but we just you really can't rush them, you know. So we're all just kind of waiting. We wait for the word and then we go in and. Everybody does his own, you know, part kind of individually. He writes the songs and produces He's written the Yeah, he wrote the bulk of it as he did with the last one, although Tom and I collaborated with probably a little more on this one as far as the lyrics go. I think I wrote the lyrics to uh, two or three of the songs, or wrote the lyrics to two and helped out on another one. But the, uh, the bulk of the music is Tom's. How surprised were you about the success of the first album? Uh, very surprised. Well, personally, I can't speak for the whole band, but I, like I say, some of the material on their record was five or six years old before it came out. So we had heard it and I had heard it so much before that that I couldn't really be, I lost all objectivity of it. I couldn't hear it as a a brand new record anymore. It was just, you know, those songs that I'd been hearing over and over again. So I really just had no idea how other people would take to it, but I always go, or always went by the assumption that if I was involved in it, then it uh, probably wasn't very good. So I was very surprised when that happened, you know. I just can't picture myself being in anything successful. So uh, I was extremely surprised, maybe more than uh, the other people. I thought that Tom did a, did a very good job on the record, and uh, but I wasn't too pleased with the singing on it. I thought I could have done a, a better job on it. We went out to California to do all the vocals, and uh, the weather out there really kind of wrecked havoc with my throat. I'd never been out there before, and it's so dry uh, that I had a, a real bad time out there trying to sing. I thought that the the stuff that we did on the demo tapes before that, that the singing on that, in a lot of cases, was probably a little better. But um, I guess I was satisfied overall, but, I, you know, I just... I think it's like you said, it's hard to be objective about yeah, your own material. Yeah, it was really... I think the vocals are great. Well, I think that's the best thank part. you. I guess it's, yeah, you get so close to something and you record it over and over again, the more you record it, you just keep hearing what's wrong with it, because you know what's right with it, so you're always listening for what's wrong. Okay. And when you get finished, maybe if you got 90% of it you're happy with, but there's 10% that you just couldn't get. That's that's what I hear. Tell me something about the history of the band. Well, I was playing uh, with various groups around the North Shore area. I'm from Danvers originally, but I used to play around Salem and Beverly and, and that area, as did Franny, our bass player. Uh, and I was playing in a band with him when a friend of his told me about these other two guys who had a group together, and that was Barry and Tully. So the The stuff that I was doing with Fran was all Top 40 stuff. I'd never been in a band that did any original material. And I went down to see what they were doing. And they played me two songs, one of which was um, Hitch a Ride. It wasn't called Hitch Your Ride at that time, but it was called San Francisco Day. Tom played me that and said they were going in the studio to do some work, and they were looking for a singer. So it was kind of like a golden opportunity for me. I'd never been in a studio up to that point. This was around 71, and that was something I always wanted to do. And get in the band that was doing some original material. So I left the band with Fran and uh, joined up with Barry and Tom and we went through a number of bass players. We, we played um, oh, just mostly local things like we, well we played for BU and we played different colleges and stuff and a couple of small clubs and things like that but mostly we spent uh, recording. We did some recording at Tom's house which at that time was Uh, He had a Roberts tape deck, like a two track, and he hooked it up to something else. So we had like four tracks that we could work with. And we did some recording in local studios around town. So Tom spent a lot of time trying to develop himself as a kind of engineer, producer, and eventually uh, the equipment got a little more sophisticated. And when we play out, we did about like half original material and half uh, cover stuff. What kind like, uh, of covers were you there? Oh, uh, a lot of rock and roll. Tom really likes the James Gang, you know, the, like James Gang rides again and stuff like that. So we did Ten My Garden and we did uh, Funk 49 and, and stuff like that. And we did... Um, Space trucking, you know, and uh, a lot of Led Zeppelin stuff, communication breakdown, and a lot of Rolling Stones, Brown Sugar, and all that stuff. It was mainly stuff without any harmony, and it was a lot different from what I was used to doing. Because the stuff that I was doing, I was like a... Beatles, you know, fanatic. So all the groups I was in, we used to do a lot of Beatles stuff with like, you know, four and five part harmony and stuff like that. And that's what I was used to doing. I didn't really like front the band, you know, I just was just one of like three or four singers. So when I joined the band with Tom and we started doing getting the stuff that was a little heavier, maybe, you know, featured a vocalist like that, it was kind of a new, a new thing for me. So I, I kind of learned a lot from doing that, from playing that stuff. Uh, We went through a number of bass players during that time, too. People just kind of came and went until finally Fran was someone that I knew and it turned out that he had also played with Barry previously because they're both from the Lynn area. So he was kind of a natural to kind of fit in with the band singers. He knew everybody. And he was also familiar with the material because when we were making tapes, when Tom, Barry, and myself were making tapes, I... Fran and I was still keeping in touch so I would come over his house and kind of let him in on what we were doing. So he fit in very well as did Sibby. Sibby was uh, another friend of all of us you know before he actually joined the band but he uh, he had been hearing the tapes and he was kind of into what we were doing even before he officially joined the band. So I kind of have happened uh, over a period of years but originally originally it was Tom and Barry and then it was me Tom and Barry and then the other two guys kind of came in. How did you get signed with Epic? How did we get signed with Epic? We had, like I say, when I first met Tom back in 71, the first thing we did was go into a studio at Great Northern, it is now uh, in Maine, and we made a demo tape with about, I think there were four songs on it. We sent that out to record companies. We just kind of found the addresses on the back of albums you know and just sent it and and usually it didn't get through but we've been doing that since 71 making tapes and sending them and sending them eventually they get through to somebody and the first person it got through to I guess who got back to us was uh, Charlie McKenzie who was from Boston and he was working for ABC at the time we didn't send it directly to him but he heard it in somebody else's outer office and uh, so he being local and knowing that we were local took an interest in what he heard he had a friend out in california paul Hearn, who was working i think he was an independent promotion at that time working with uh, fleetwood mac and the eagles and he had established himself working with them as a as a promoter he had been pretty successful so Paul knew knew charl and uh, charlie knew paul and uh Charlie took the tape to Paul. They both liked it, decided they wanted to go in on it together. Charlie knew a lot of people in New York. Uh, Steve Popovich, who was at that time with Epic, and uh, Ronald Luxenberg, neither one of them now, (laughs) or with Epic. But they were at the time, so he arranged to have someone come down. And then we did a a demo set down at Aerosmith Studio at the warehouse. We rented that And, uh, and did a set for for those people who came up and uh, it was probably equally on the strength of the demo and on the strength of uh, Paul and Charlie's recommendation that we got the contract. I mean no matter how good the tape was unless we had somebody to bring it there personally like them no it never would have got listened to. After it track, got to them, they were impressed by the quality of the demo tape. We we kind of had a quick rehearsal get together for the for when they came up to listen to us, and it wasn't very good. We weren't too happy with it, but it was good enough, I guess, to get signed. What kind of deal did you get? You know, I don't know to this day what kind of deal we have. Um, we've got all kinds of people that are going over contracts and things, but I guess it was just a standard five-year contract with whatever. You know, for a beginning group, there was no special I mean, it wasn't a big thing, uh, nobody in the company, I don't think, thought it was going to turn out the way it did, and we certainly didn't, so it was no, it was just a, whatever anybody else gets, and then when the record first came out, when it, I think it sold like uh, 40,000 the first week, and... Uh, when it sold 40,000, I figured, well, it must have peaked, you know, that was it, <laughs> you know. And then it would sell, like, you know, 110,000 or something. I go, wow, well, this must be going down. None of the singles, oddly enough, went gold. More than a feeling, I think, sold maybe around eight, eight fifty 900,000 copies. Um, I think that did the best of all the singles. The album sold 6 million. The singles, they obviously helped the, helped the album sales but it wasn't the, it wasn't or it didn't seem to me to be like the big single you know i think the biggest selling point for us was that they were playing most of the album on the, like on the fm stations they were playing almost every cut some people have said that their early live shows were somewhat less than good uh yeah I can think of quite a few. The first two in uh, in Boston, as a matter of fact, were pretty horrendous. The first two of the Music Hall. Actually, before that, we played in Waltham, and that was pretty horrendous, too. Uh, part of the reason for that, and I think a good part of it, was that we didn't have a crew together. We didn't have a sound man who was with us all the time. We kind of picked up people as we went along. Things happened so quickly that we just didn't have that part of it together, and I think that's a real... You can't underestimate... That part of a live show, and when it's not one, when it's not your show, uh, you have to rely on on the other people's sound system and whatever. But you have at least you have your own sound man, which we didn't have at that time. We were still kind of experimenting. We didn't get that together until until really we went out. We went out to the Midwest for a couple of weeks, and I think when we came back, we had that a little more together than uh, than previously. How did you find other bands treated you when you were, on th- were third on the bill? well usually they treat you pretty good if you're third on the bill the first big shows we did 13 14 15 thousand people were with uh, opening for black sabbath down south uh, we did about two weeks with them and they were uh, among the nicest people that we that we met on the road, they were just great. The the first date that they that we played with them was their first first time they had played in a couple of years or something. They just all they were all in England. They got together, hadn't even seen each other or something, and uh, they didn't want to do a sound check. They just said, "No, oh, go ahead, do what you want." They never did sound check, so things went very smoothly for us, and uh, and they were nice people. How do you react to something like? What Elvis Costello said. In, in, I think it was Newsreel. Yeah. Well, I can only speak for myself. I can't speak yeah. for the rest of the band. But personally, uh, it hurt me. I suppose when you read a bad review, even if, say, a critic, you know, writes a bad review, even if, even if you don't feel it's true, you know, even if you feel maybe you did a good job that night, because plenty of times we've gotten good reviews when we felt we weren't so good, and terrible reviews when we thought that we really sounded good. But um, even if you don't believe it, those things still... They're talking about you, and so it still registers, you know? And the fact that, like I say, I like his records. And I never met him, and I never saw one of his shows. But yeah, it kind of hurt to have somebody say it's too bad he feels that way. I guess there's not too much I can do about it, really. Oh, that's pretty good, you take it pretty well. Because well, you, you could, you on the other hand, say, well, we sold six million records this and this guy sold 300,000. So well, I'll tell you, to me, it really doesn't matter if we sell six records or six million. And Now, that's not easy for me to say because I've already sold them, so anybody can say, oh, yeah, sure we can say that, you know. But I didn't expect to sell six million records, but I can't apologize for it. It's not my fault that we sold that many either, you know. I didn't have any hostility towards anybody. In, but, like, we play with Rick Derringer. Now, the first time I played with Rick Derringer, he was opening for us. And the only thing I could think of was there's no justice. I mean, we, it doesn't matter how many records we sold, we should be opening for him because he's, he's paid his dues. He's been around so long. He's, he's been an innovator. You know, he's, We naturally have, uh, a lot, some of our music, a portion of it, at least had to derive from Derringer because you know, he was right there while we were learning. So its you know it's not fair. And he probably knows it's not fair either, but he knows that that's the way it is if somebody's, quote, commercial. So that's nice when you meet people like that that really know, understand that that, that it's not always, uh, it's not always fair, you know, in the record business. And and someday it's not gonna be fair for us either. You know, maybe we had more than our share now and maybe some other time, maybe we'll feel a little more deserving and won't get it, you know, that's possible. But, but, uh, if that happens I mean I think you have to take that in stride you know it's crazy I just have to take things when they as they come you know if the record didn't sell uh, you know I'm not going to go shoot myself or something and by the same token I hate to feel like I should go shoot myself now because it did sell some people have accused the album the first album of being sterile sound because of overdubs and things like that how many overdubs were done and how much Tom was put into the final process. Oh, it's hard to hard to say how many how many overdubs were done um, because when we when we put an album together we do we do everything kind of one at a time. So anyway, it took us a while to get the album the way we wanted it to, but it, but the the sound on the album was based on uh, one the idea Tom originally had was recorded, and two. We all played it together to see how we, what we could add to it by playing it live. Then we went back into the studio and tried to put those together. Sometimes it's nice to make a. It's nice to have an album with a kind of loose feel to it, you know, and maybe have some guitar parts that are maybe not quite in tune, you know. And sometimes maybe that adds to a, to the you know, the feeling of the record, something you know, the first take. We don't we don't do a lot. A lot of stuff isn't like first take. It usually took a few takes, but Tom wanted, he wanted something that was a, was a statement of what he had envisioned. So he wants to get it right, and then we get a chance to interpret it when we go out on the road. What kind of an audience do you think Boston attracts. We were surprised when we went out because it was really, uh, Quite a wide range, anywhere from like 13 to our age, 24, 25, 26. We there was a lot of. I talked to a lot of college people at the shows, and uh, I talked to a lot of kids younger than that too. I never gave it much much thought, figured out why, but it's it, it struck me kind of funny. Um, the, the Beatles were like 21, 22 years old when I was buying the records. I was 12. You know what? I don't know what the what the correlation is or why. And now we're, you know, on 26, and people 13 are buying the record. Now I remember about the Beatles too, on AM radio. That they used to play all the cuts from their album when well, i was about 12 years old when they came out and i liked music i i liked elvis up to that point really my older sister used to uh, collect all his records but i used to listen to him and i really liked elvis even when i was seven eight nine years old i wanted to play music but i yeah. was always kind of withdrawn you know kind of shy in school and like that and so when the beatles came out it just really took over my life you know I just the music really meant a lot to me hearing and I just liked it from the start and I made it a point to know everything about them so then I'd like go into school and nobody even knew which one was which you know so I like then that would get me talking to people and then I met some people that played music through that and got in my first band and we naturally played all Beatle material so the Beatles really got me into music or at least I had always liked music up to that point, but they kind of loosened me up enough to to go out and play. Actually, we used to play around the North Shore, and that was like our big forte, was doing Beatles stuff. We used to do Magical Mystery Tour, and uh, like Hey Jude, you know, with with six-part harmony, and I was real big on on, uh, doing stuff with harmonies and, you know, that's why when I first met Tom, they weren't doing any of that. None of none of the rest of the guys were singing. So it was a real different thing for me to be doing like, you know, Rolling Stones stuff. I wasn't really used to that. So it was good. I it was kind of like a learning experience for me, you know, I took it that way. Is the band a democracy? Hmm. Well it is, insofar as that we all have input and that there's we've all decided that if there's something that's questioned as far as the music goes, that it goes up before the whole band if, if most of the band doesn't want it in, it won't go in. So in that sense, it's a democracy, to the, up to the point where, of course, Tom writes all the material, or most of the material, and that's only because he's got, he's got it all together, you know? I mean, if, I'm going to have at least one song on the next album, because I wrote one, you know? If the other guys has some material and everybody likes it, we'll put that on, too. If he writes a material, he knows best how it, how it should go. So he puts, he has the main input as far as that goes. And also, he's the only one that, out of the band that knows his way around the studio. The rest of us just don't have the, the knowledge. So we leave that to him. And when he, whenever he writes anything down, or if he plays something, if he puts it down on tape, he'll play it for us, and he'll say, "Well, what do you think of this part? Or how do you like this?" If We don't like it. He'll get rid of it. He's he's real easy to get along with that way. If he if it's something that he really feels strongly about he'll try and you know explain why he did it and usually usually we you know we'll go along with something like that but it's it's pretty it's pretty democratic you know it kind of it doesn't give that appearance i suppose to people who really don't know the band figure well it's just tom and and these other these other guys you know but the fact is that most of us have been playing together in one band or another for quite a few years so we're not you know it's not like the droids that he picked up or something and said you know play this it doesn't work that way
0: hey thanks for listening to the tapes archive podcast please remember you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website thetapesarchive.com until next time the vault is closed